Dusty, what's the one book you can always find in our car when we're on a trip? Honestly, Mike, it is usually a Moon travel guide. That's right. Moon is our favorite travel guidebook publisher because not only are they a source for ethical travel and the best ways to get away, but their books also are packed full of information on everything from sites to see, trails to hike, restaurants, and lodging, all from real authors who are local to the areas they're writing about. That's right. And we're so excited that this year we are again partnering with Moon Travel Guides. Ready to cross something off your travel bucket list in 2024? Have a lot of great ideas for trips, but don't know how to get started or keep your itinerary organized? Wherever your wanderings might take you or inspire you to go, Moon Travel has you covered. Moon Travel is the travel guidebook publisher for ethical travel. Don't spend months trying to craft the perfect getaway when you can do it all with Moon. Whether you're headed abroad, planning to take to the open road, or want to wander the trails of a national park, make sure to pack a Moon Travel Guide with you. Through the end of 2024, our listeners can get 20% off any Moon Travel Guide when they use the code GAZE20 at checkout. That's amazing. And that is code GAZE24, G-A-Z-E-2-4 for 20% off any Moon travel guide in Moon's entire library. And that is just for our listeners, and you cannot find that anywhere else. Be sure to visit Moon.com. Head to our show notes and check it out and see Moon's entire collection of travel guidebooks. Hello and welcome to Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. I'm Dusty. And I'm Mike. If you're joining us for the first time, Gaze at the National Parks is a podcast that explores the hiking trails of America's national parks. One hiking trail and one national park, one park at a time. In between our full-length episodes, which explore these trails, we have Trail Mix episodes, which cover a variety of topics mostly related to the parks and the environment. Often these Trail Mix episodes explore topics we didn't have time to cover in depth in our full-length episodes. In this Trail Mix, we will be discussing bark beetles and the effects on the forests of the world, specifically those of North America. So what do you know about the life cycle of a forest? I know that fire is part of a forest's natural life cycle. Mm -hmm. We've talked about that quite a bit here. Forests go through the seasons. And oftentimes that means, you know, their leaves change color and they fall and then the trees die, but then they come back to life in the spring, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like Jesus. (laughs) Right. Like Jesus. Every spring, back to life. Well, sort of um, true. And that evergreen trees stay green all year, mostly. Most of them, yes. Most yeah. of them, not yeah. all of them. No. Yeah, that's pretty succinct. I know that there are a lot of natural things that contribute besides fire to the life cycle of a forest, and they are an incredible biosphere for animals and plants. Um, it's not just all about the trees. Correct. Um, there is definitely a lot to be had in a forest. And a lot that changes a forest based off of what's in it. Yes. Yeah. And that everything, I mean, this is cliche. Is a web, I feel. It's a circle. Yeah, right. Has a name. Plays a role, right. like in the ecosystem of a forest. Yeah. That was yeah. what I was looking yeah. for. Definitely. Forests undergo a process known as succession. Like the hit HBO. <laughs> right. I was yeah. waiting mm-hmm. for that. Here's how that works when it comes to conifers. Conifers produce millions of seeds each year. These seeds drop to the ground. Some seeds germinate and survive. If the seeds are lucky enough, they will grow into seedlings. And if they are lucky enough, they will get a scholarship and go to college. Right. And if they are lucky enough, they will grow above the low brush to compete for sun, water, and other nutrients. 
When they are established, these saplings then grow into mature trees. Over time, in most cases, growth will slow, and the trees will eventually die due to a whole host of reasons, from not enough nutrients, to fire, to logging, to insect attacks. These trees eventually decompose again, slowly, which adds back to the soil and the surrounding ecosystem. So here's a follow-up question for you. How do you think bark beetles play into the life cycle of a forest? Okay, well, I have two thoughts. Mm -hmm. I think they're either helping it Mm -hmm. or they're destroying it. Yeah, well... And I'm not sure which one it is. You're not wrong about either. Okay. But it just depends. Well, there you go, right? So nothing is either fully good or fully bad, (laughs) right? That's right. All things in moderation. Right. (laughs) Because I knew you. (laughs) (laughs) I have been changed for good. (laughs) All right. Wicked references, everyone. (laughs) Over the summer of 2021, we had the incredible experience of being able to travel to over 10 national parks in five weeks. We saw so much of the country and got to experience so many different types of wildlife and landscapes as we hiked our way through these parks. From Indiana sand dunes to Glacier to Mammoth Cave, we encountered our fair share of insects along the way, much to Dusty's chagrin, I might add. However, it wasn't until we were in Grand Teton National Park that we encountered any trace of bark beetles. Or at least bark beetle prevention, that is. On our second day of hiking in the Grand Tetons, on one of the more grueling uphill adventures, there were so many. Yeah. We ran across some small white plastic pouches stapled to a tree along the trail with the following note, quote, white bark pine are critical to the Grand Teton National Park's high elevation ecosystems. The park is working to protect the trees you see here from mountain pine beetle using pheromone pouches, end quote. We'll discuss these pouches later in the episode, but suffice it to say, our curiosities were piqued because as far as parks go, this was the first time we'd ever seen a management technique like this for this specific problem. But that's getting ahead of ourselves a bit. Let's start at the beginning. So like many things in the environment, everything in moderation and nothing to excess. Bark beetles are actually an important part of the ecosystem and life cycle of a forest, like you thought, Dusty, in the way that controlled burns are important to a forest life cycle. However, it's when conditions change dramatically and tip the scales of these forest aids that problems arise. My question is, what does the bark sound like when a bark beetle barks? (laughs) (laughs) That, and also when an invasive type of species, not endemic to the landscape, enters onto the stage, that issues may also arise. Take, for example, the gypsy moth or the spotted lanternfly, both of which are invasive species. One endemic to France, the other to China, Vietnam, and India. Both of these insects, while seemingly harmless upon glance, are actually detrimental to trees and in some cases vines and other crops. Growing up, gypsy moths were often talked about, specifically the caterpillars, because they defoliate or eat the leaves off of trees. From the New York Department of Environmental Conservation, quote, deciduous trees, trees that lose their leaves each fall, can regrow a new set of leaves by July and can usually withstand two to three successive years of defoliation, removal of leaves, without being killed. However, defoliation does reduce the vigor and resistance of a tree, and it becomes more susceptible to pests and diseases, end quote. 
The spotted lanternfly is a nuisance, not because of defoliation, but because these lanternflies actually eat the sap of a tree. The lanternflies, in turn, secret a sugary... Secrete. Sorry, that's my fault. (laughs) Secret. (laughs) (laughs) The lanternflies, in turn, secrete a sugary substance known as honeydew, which can create mold which damages the tree and attracts other harmful insects to an already compromised arbor. Specifically, lanternflies can be detrimental to crops and have large implications on agriculture and the economy of a region or state. And while this episode isn't about either of these invasive insects, it is worth noting that invasive species, be they insect, plant, or animal, can seriously upend the ecosystem of an area and without natural predators or control measures may cause serious harm. This brings us back to bark beetles and the fact that both non-endemic types of the species as well as other environmental factors have contributed to a rise in their destructive presence. Over 600 types of bark beetles can be found in the United States and Canada, Canada having 200 species unique to its landscape. As Mike stated earlier, these insects are part of the life cycle of a forest and the trees within it. Most bark beetles impact conifers or evergreens, while some also feed on the bark of broadleaf or deciduous trees. Most high elevation or alpine conifers are affected by the mountain pine beetle or the Jeffrey pine beetle. Bark beetles are small, cylindrical insects about the size of a grain of rice. Most are dark in color from a deep red to black, and while small, these insects are mighty, with strong jaws for chewing through the living tree. While there are other insects that bore into and attack wood, bark beetles are particularly nefarious because of the damage they cause to the tree, which weakens it. The typical life cycle of these beetles include a female, which lays eggs within the outer layers of a bark, larvae, which travel from this egg-laying chamber outward, burrowing holes, which become larger as the larvae grow either within or beneath the bark. Adult insects may emerge at any time during the year, but temperature typically determines this, and most adults emerge from the spring to the fall. They may emerge from the bark to simply reinfest the same tree or travel outward looking for other trees to infest and impact. When the bark is removed from the tree, either upon inspection or due to weathering or the impact of the beetles, it is easier to identify what type of beetle has actually been active within the bark of the tree as the galleries or burrowing holes and egg-laying chambers all have specific identifiers based on the type of beetle infestation. Some other major identifiers to know if a tree is under attack from a wood-boring insect, specifically a bark beetle, include a sap flow or sap tube that is created from the activity of the beetles along with frass, is a sawdust-like material that may appear near the sap tube, opening or on the bark, near the ground, or caught in spider webs that may be on or near the tree. Holes in the bark, also known as emergence holes, are another indicator that bark beetles may be present. Upon further inspection of this bark, the inner bark may be dead. While many bark beetles feed on the larger parts of the tree, the limbs and trunks, some feed on the twigs at the end of the branches, which result in dead tips, which are another common indicator of a bark beetle attack. 
If we think back to the life cycle of a forest and how it operates, it's, it's clear that insects and animals play an important role in the breakdown of organic matter, returning deadened trees to the forest from which they were born in order to replenish the soil for new trees to grow within. And while bark beetles have been a part of the life cycle of a forest, unfortunately, they themselves can cause the demise of a tree or hasten it towards its death. And for the most part, bark beetles really present a persistent problem to the tree or a group of trees if the tree or trees are stressed and therefore weakened. When we think about stress in the plant kingdom, there are a few factors that contribute to stress, including drought, disease, and injuries. And poor work-life And (laughs) ex-boyfriends. Ex-boyfriends, exactly. (laughs) And this is where climate change comes into play. Surprise. Surprise. So what do you think of when you think of climate change affecting the natural biospheres of the earth? Well, I think of immediately in Acadia, there are those birds that can't make their nests in the same way because like the the shoreline keeps getting eroded. Yes. They get closer. So Mm -hmm. it like keeps getting like they can't thrive. Right. And that's one of their only native places. Right. I forget what birds. Yeah. Specifically. Yeah. I think of that's like, only one example. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's one, one of, of many, many, many examples. I think the thing that um, really hits home is acidification of the ocean. I live right here. I mean, you live very close too. Um, and you grew up. I on grew the up beach, right on the beach. Basically, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. The Gulf. So that is like, the biggest bummer. Like, oh, yeah. the, the, the fact that the ocean is taking in more carbon and becoming acidified because of it. Um, Um, The mouth of the Mississippi River is considered a dead zone. mm -hmm. Life can't thrive there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's super great, right? It's so great. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So There's so much to be excited about when it comes to climate change. Mississippi. (laughs) Right. Right. One of, you know, they could have done that climate conference on Zoom. The one that just happened. The COP26. Yeah. Right? Like, Did I get that right? Yeah. I was like, come on, y'all. Yeah. Y'all know what to do. Yeah. You all do know what to do. Get your shit together. Let's go, right. girls. So, we're going out tonight. <laughs> <laughs> we're making Earth all right. <laughs> we're gonna let it all hang out. Yep. We don't have the rights to any of that music. <laughs> we just have to say that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I keep thinking about all those memes that are mm-hmm. like, they're like, this is the hottest summer oh, yeah. I've ever experienced. And it's like more yeah. like the coldest summer you've ever right. like, for the rest ever, of your for life. The rest of mm-hmm. your life. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like November right now and it's like in the mid sixties still. I'm like, this isn't great, everybody. <laughs> it's not yeah. great. I'm yeah. not complaining over it over here personally. Oh, I know. But I'm just but like that's existentially me being selfish. like right. <laughs> crying. I mean, what else is new? <laughs> I mean, it's my default. This is, it's a it's a Saturday. <laughs> it's a crutch. It's a for Saturday. Sadness. Saturday. Environmental sadness. <laughs> right. Devastation. Devastation. <laughs> Weekly devastation. <laughs> Weekly devastation. <laughs> exactly. Right. It's my crutch. It is. Mm-hmm. It's your crutch. Forests as we know them today have evolved and changed due to a variety of factors, which include natural changes due to climate, which happens over hundreds, if not thousands of years. However, due to global warming and its impact, forests are becoming more stressed and changing more rapidly. In fact, which were once carbon sinks, an area that would absorb a large amount of carbon, are becoming carbon sources. This is true of the Amazon rainforest right now. This gigantic area, which used to be the world's largest forest carbon sink, has now switched its role. This is mostly 
due to deforestation from logging and changing weather patterns, which the rainforest itself once influenced. While not exactly related to what we are talking about, the implications of these forests losing trees through logging, wildfires, or the attack of invasive species should be ringing alarm bells the world over. The issue is, when it comes to bark beetles, that these invasive species have now hastened the process of tree and forest mortality. There are a variety of factors that have made bark beetles a formidable enemy to the conifer forests of the world. All of them, in some ways, factor back to or are a result of climate change. They include denser forests, shorter and warmer winters, and greater drought conditions. From an article titled, Mountain Pine Beetle, a Major Disturbance Agent in U.S. Western Coniferous Forests, a Synthesis of the State of Knowledge, by Jose F. Negron and Christopher J. Fatigue from Forest Science. Quote, The structure and composition of today's forests is the product of thousands of years of responses to climate influences and disturbance agents, and human activities have influenced how disturbances shape forests. For example, prior to Euro-American settlement, Ponderosa forests in the southwestern United States were often dominated by park-like structures of widely dispersed trees, particularly on more xeric, which means very dry, sites. Low-intensity surface fires that frequently thinned small-diameter trees and fire-intolerant tree species and understory grasses that excluded tree seedlings likely maintained these conditions. Today, many of these forests are denser, have more small trees and fewer large trees, and are dominated by more shade-tolerant and fire-intolerant tree species. This is primarily a result of fire exclusion and past harvesting practices, but it has unintended consequences as these forest conditions are of increased susceptibility to bark beetles as well as wildfires, end quote. Essentially, these denser forests, which at one time were managed and maintained by native people who understand how to act as stewards for these spaces, have now made it much easier for the beetle populations to spread from tree to tree because of their proximity. This has also increased the potential for wildfires that spread fast and burn more intensely. Look at that. Colonialism. (laughs) Strikes again. Yep. Mm-hmm. Forest fires can be hastened by bark beetles because of the destruction and death that they bring to areas within forests. Fires may tend to burn more intensely in areas where trees have recently died. Remember that while different types of trees are affected by bark beetles, conifers are most susceptible. If a forest encounters an area of deadened conifers with their needles still on the tree, these trees become a major fuel source for the raging blaze. Trees that have dropped their needles while still fuel the fire are less of a fuel source, but nevertheless still fuel. While bark beetle populations and impact have ebbed and flowed throughout time, one controlling factor with bark beetles and many insects is colder winter weather. Winter's importance as not only a control valve for temperature, but as a time for nature's replenishment has been critically overlooked, especially by those of us who like the warmer weather. For trees, the winter is a time for slowing down. Deciduous trees lose their leaves and essentially shut down photosynthesis, while those in the conifer family can still undergo this process. The loss of these leaves on deciduous trees helps the tree to maintain more water throughout the winter. 
The small needles of conifers actually are excellent for helping to retain water within the tree. A number of changes happen on the cellular level within a tree that help it to survive the winter, including shrinkage, dehydration, and sugar concentration. Sounds like going to a gay pool party to me. <laughs> yeah. Shrinkage, <laughs> dehydration, and sugar, sugar concentration. concentration. <laughs> yep. And for everything else... The tree has bark, which protects it from the cold, unless, of course, it is damaged. While winter is a time for trees to slow down and to draw inward, it is also a time for insects to die or become dormant. However, our winters have become shorter and less cold than they have in the past. Cold winters historically have helped to manage insect populations, although not decimate their populations in the ways you may think. All insects have some resistance to cold, and many, through burrowing practices in the winter, below the frost line, manage to survive. Temperatures often need to be a sustained, deep cold in order to be the cause of insect mortality. That being said, areas that were historically much colder for longer periods of time have seen warmer winters and populations of insects grow and in some cases explode, causing problems for humans and plants alike. Warmer winters, or areas whose yearly climate have skewed warmer in recent decades, have seen bark beetle populations explode in some cases. In some places, winters are no longer cold enough to kill the larvae of the bark beetle, making it difficult to manage the population. Climates that now see warmer than typical winters are also seeing these insects creep into their forests and defect their trees when that was historically not the case. Furthermore, a shortened winter season allows for greater activity of the bark beetle along with other pests. Aside from insect control, winter is also important for another reason, the creation of snowpacks. In mountainous regions of the West, snowpacks are the lifeblood of communities and ecosystems. A developing story in the Western United States is the loss of water from reservoirs and aquifers, which feed a large majority of the Southwest region. Without these snowpacks, which are sort of like a temperature-controlled water release, the West will face some serious issues going forward. Snowpacks feed rivers and streams, which in turn feed communities. In the plant and animal kingdom, the slow release of water from snowpacks act as a lifeblood, nourishing and providing trees, wildflowers, animals, and insects. While snowpacks still exist, they have historically shifted, either by accumulating less snow in the winter season, melting faster with warmer spring and summer temperatures, or a combination of both of these factors. Along with helping to nourish animals, snowpacks provide water to trees in these typically drought-prone, arid climates. While snow, which often remains later in the season in tree-covered or shaded areas, also helps with this, the warming climate is making these small patches melt faster, causing trees to become stressed due to longer periods without water, in turn weakening them against attack by invasive species. Enter the bark beetle. A tree that is stressed or injured is much more susceptible to an attack from an invasive species like the bark beetle, making the issue of water an important one when it comes to saving forests and trees. Reflexively, the loss of trees may also contribute to the loss of snowpacks sooner, as forests and tree-shaded areas tend to retain snow for longer periods due to cooler temperatures. This loss of snowpack also connects directly to shorter winters, and also has direct implications on the wildfire season, as larger snowpacks, which melt slower, keep the ground moist for longer periods, lessening the chances of fire outbreak. 
Like most things in nature, everything connects, and it's clear that these dots are connecting to form a rather grim picture. There are, of course, efforts to control the population of bark beetles, or at least repel them from host trees. The pouches that we saw stapled to the trees in Grand Teton are one such example of pheromone pouches to inhibit or prevent attack of bark beetles. The pheromone pouches mimic a signal to other beetles that the tree has too many beetles within it and that they should seek another tree. Other versions of this pheromone repellent include a direct application to a tree, which later biodegrades, preventing crews from having to return to the tree to remove the pheromone pouch, which only has a life of about a year. And of course, while it is not the preferred method, insecticide seems to be the best method of control. This method can't be used everywhere, specifically along trails, rivers, or in campgrounds, but it is the most effective. The pheromone pouches and pheromone repellent, while useful, are not as potent when the population of bark beetles is high or where there are high densities of trees. If the situation seems bleak, it's because on some level, it is. Bark beetles are a problem. They may ebb and flow, but they are here to stay. With our changing climate and rising temperatures, it's clear that despite control methods, these pests may make the world a little less green through their destructive appetites. The sources for today's episodes are the United States Forestry Service and the University of California Agricultural and Natural Resources. This has been Trail Mix by Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast, and we're here to remind you to hike early and hike often, and that adventure is always out there. Gaze at the National Parks was created and is hosted by us, Dustin Ballard and Michael Ryan. To see images from this episode, follow our Instagram at Gaze at the National Parks. To contact us, email us at gazeatthenationalparks at gmail.com. And to find out more about the parks visited on this show, visit our website, gazeatthenationalparks.com. That's gaze, G-A-Z-E. All original artwork featured on Instagram, on our website, and in the Gaze shop is by me, Michael Ryan. All original music was written by Dave Seaman and performed by Dave Seaman, Mariella Klinger, and Sean Sklios. Our music producer is Skylar Fordgang. This episode was edited by me, Dustin Ballard. We would also like to acknowledge that while recording this episode, that we are on the traditional and stolen lands of the Lenape people, also known as Ocean County, New Jersey.